0: Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In this week's Trending News EU episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamics' Jack Young and Ali May to talk about what's trending now. Jack, what headlines have you been following lately?
1: So following on from our story that we covered last time on our podcast together around research development efforts in the field of neuroscience, I was really excited to learn about some results from a major clinical trial of a new Alzheimer's drug that has confirmed that this therapy can actually slow the rate of cognitive decline, raising hopes that medicine in this field may one day halt the most common form of dementia. Alzheimer's still has no cure, so I was really excited to learn of these really great results that came out of this particular therapy. So this particular drug, donanemab, as I mentioned, it targets amyloid, which is a neuron damaging protein in the brains of patients with dementia. And this trial showed that among people who started taking it at the earliest stages of the disease, forty-seven percent had no disease progression on some measures after one year, and that compared to twenty-nine percent who took a placebo. In people with relatively minor cognitive impairment who started taking this therapy, cognitive decline slowed by as much as 60%, and the drug also cleared around 90% of the total amount of amyloid from the brain. So really encouraging results in terms of that trial. However, there are some particular areas that may require further investigation, as unfortunately a quarter of trial participants actually developed abnormalities related to the amyloid protein which can sometimes lead to potentially fatal brain bleeding and seizures. And these instances were most common in patients who particularly carried the APOE 4 genetic variation, which raises the risk of developing Alzheimer's disease.
2: Thanks, Jack. And a a really exciting story. I know we've discussed on the pod before about the disease burden in the UK and the EU of Alzheimer's. So, really encouraging to see a good treatment for those who are diagnosed at an early stage, at least promising so far. And as you mentioned, those who don't carry that specific genetic variation. I think now, given the positive results, it's going to be really interesting to see how both the UK and European regulatory bodies judge the new treatments especially in the past, other monoclonal antibodies targeting Alzheimer's, such as aducanumab, which were not approved for usage in the EU due to safety concerns. The challenge and the nuanced point here for regulators is to understand the balance between that brain swelling and that bleeding that you described versus the potential benefits this could have for people with early Alzheimer's. Another point which, Jack, I know has been in the news here is understanding how well-equipped UK hospitals are in identifying and diagnosing patients at this early stage. And I think this is going to have a really significant bearing on how successful this technology and this science will be in treating
1: patients in the real world. From what I've read, there are several limitations in the UK when it comes to the implementation of denanumab and similar monoclonal antibodies. And they will definitely need to be tackled before potential regulatory approvals. And one of the most significant one of those is the amount of PET scanners available in UK hospitals. So PET scanners are positron emission tomography scanners. And these are the scanners that are needed to test Alzheimer's patient's suitability for this treatment, of donanemab, as they only have the functionality to spot the signs of dementia early enough for the treatment to be effective. However, the UK came just 25th out of 28th of major nations for provision of CT, MRI and PET scans per capita. And we only have 0.4 PET scanners per million of population in the UK. And that compares quite starkly with Switzerland, as an example, who has 3.94 per capita population. As a result of these shortages, whilst around 720,000 people in the UK might potentially benefit from new Alzheimer's drugs as there's a massive unmet need in the UK and of course across the world at large, the true number will be far lower given the shortages we have. And Alzheimer's Research UK recently estimated that only 2% of patients are actually eligible for Lecanemab, which is a different monoclonal antibody targeting Alzheimer's that would actually have access to this drug under existing testing capabilities in the UK. So there's significant gaps there in terms of the UK's infrastructure capabilities to be able to treat Alzheimer's, beyond points Ollie mentioned, and there will be other barriers I can imagine around cost. So although lecanumab is available, it does cost around $22,000 in the US, where it's currently licensed and approved. And as many of you that will listen to this will be able to appreciate that in the UK, we do have pressures related to uh, costs related to reimbursement of therapy. So that could be a barrier as well.
2: Certainly disappointing to hear, Jack, I guess that gap between where the science is now at or the direction of travel versus actually the infrastructure capabilities, I suppose, across UK hospitals. And that study that you mentioned That also relates back to the Life Science Competitiveness Indicators report, which was released last week. The UK didn't come out so positively in that. Similar report to what you mentioned, in CT scanners, MRI units, uh, and PET scanners, the UK was actually 16th out of 16 for comparator countries. and As you mentioned, these constraints are going to compound the issue on the, I guess, very limited clinical pathway for mild cognitive impairment in the NHS. It's going to be interesting to follow this story, see how the Department of Health and the NHS can respond to this new technology. Can we implement swift and accurate diagnostic capabilities to help identify patients that can benefit from this and see if we can provide our hospitals with the right equipment to support this early diagnosis?
0: Yeah, it's certainly a tricky area when we're thinking about Alzheimer's and how do we really move the needle in progress there, you know, on our side of the pond. Things are continuing to move forward as well, but not without their struggles. If we look at all of the, I'll say kerfuffle around the ad help accelerated approval and how that has trickled into even the recent approval of Lakembi, which is the the trade name here in the States for Lakanamab, which just had full approval. As we talked about on our trending news, U S episode, there's been a lot of tempering, I would say, of the optimism with these newer classes of Alzheimer's drugs and perhaps some uncertainty, right, with the drama around algae homes, accelerated approval, feeling that there needed to be a higher burden of data to get Lecembe approved. And even now with Donanemab being told by the FDA that they would not be granted accelerated approval would have to go through traditional pathways, just a lot of hurdles from a regulatory perspective. And then to your point as well of costing, right, with CMS only reimbursing Aduhelm for clinical trials, covering a good portion, but still not all of Lakembi, and TBD, depending on Donanomeb's approval, what their coverage decision will be. And a lot of criticisms around, do we have the right infrastructure in place as well in terms of memory centers, appropriate training to appropriately roll out these therapies to the right patient population. I wanna dig in a little bit to that last piece you talked about, Ali, around trying to see like how can we accelerate diagnosis, improve our infrastructure, right, for Alzheimer's. One area where a lot of optimism I think is happening in, in early diagnosis is around AI. And if I remember correctly, You have a good story coming out of the UK around how the NHS is starting to use AI in more of their day-to-day operations.
2: It seems to be a very positive news month in terms of technology and progress, obviously with the Alzheimer's drug, but also AI, which is obviously one of the hot topics at the moment. And this is about an application of AI to shrink waiting times in NHS hospitals for cancer patients. This is out of Adam Brooks Hospital, which is a big research hospital in Cambridge. It's now able to plan radiotherapy treatments faster than in the past. And this is thanks to AI advances that are cutting the waiting times. This AI has been introduced in collaboration with Microsoft. So interesting to see big tech working directly with a hospital. And the new AI system is called Asaris. The way it's helping is it's revolutionizing the preparation of scans and reducing the time patients must wait between their referral and then when their treatment begins. Working alongside this technology, specialists can now plan radiotherapy treatments approximately two and a half times faster than if they were working without the technology. So it's ensuring patients get treatment sooner, and especially with cancer patients, this improves the likelihood of better outcomes.
1: Really great to see that. We've got this technology available to help us given the significant waiting times that we have within the UK at present. So I was really interested to learn actually how that Asara system actually works.
2: The Asara system, it reduces the currently labor-intensive process of manually outlining all of the healthy organs on scans prior to the radiotherapy. Doctors do this today. It's known as segmentation. And doing this precisely is really critical to protect the healthy tissue and ensure that in the cancer treatment, radiation isn't impacting any healthy organs. Typically, it's going to take a doctor, depending on the patient, anywhere from 20 minutes to three hours to perform this task. Asaris, using machine learning and, and thousands of examples, is streamlining that segmentation process. So it's helping doctors identify healthy tissue much faster and that's freeing up time to focus on treatment planning whilst the AI handles that segmentation piece. And it linked back to a conference a couple of weeks ago where Tony Blair and Keir Starmer were talking at length about the need to leverage AI. Obviously, cost is a, is a big concern in, in the UK at the moment. And they were really focusing on in healthcare and in other sectors, how can we leverage AI to support public services and start to leverage some of the pressures? that we're seeing with our ageing population, et cetera. I think this is a really great practical example.
1: So it's great to see how the UK is continuing to champion cutting-edge research and development. And by combining the power of AI with the clinical expertise of the NHS, we have an amazing opportunity here to enhance healthcare delivery and ultimately improve patient outcomes. And I know you referenced the life science competitive indicators report earlier, Ollie. and this story also aligns with this in terms of perhaps in a more positive way, as that report showed the UK actually maintained its ranking for key R&D indicators. I've also read about how the NHS has been homing in on the use of AI tech to support stroke diagnosis, and that can lead to a potential reduction in disability rates, as well as preserving brain function. And to give you some statistics around that, you know, there was a recent report by the government suggesting that AI in some cases has halved the time for stroke victims to get the treatment they need, by helping doctors diagnose stroke faster. So, some really amazing statistics there about how the power of AI could really benefit in terms of getting patients improved patient outcomes, as well as the speed you referenced in terms of cutting those waiting times, which is a key gap. It'll be interesting to see how widely this is adopted. I was just catching up with a family member the other day, and he said they're still using paper-based records that haven't yet gone on digital. So this is obviously way across the other end of the spectrum in terms of the AI piece. So I'd be interested to see how quickly this can get implemented and across the UK as a whole and not just in pockets.
0: I love these examples of AI technology really being able to help practitioners across the globe operate at the top of their license. We've talked on this podcast before about just the immense strain right now on the NHS. And I think we see similar strain in our medical system as well. And trying to resolve that, it's it's hard to get short-term wins. A lot of it is investing in education and making sure that we have enough practitioners in the model, that takes time, but technologies like AI help gather those those low-hanging fruit of reducing the burden of those lower value activities that practitioners are providing and really helping them focus on care and really helping them focus on patient outcomes, which is the most important thing. So really encouraging to see the, the uptake in such a tangible way in the NHS. I have to say, guys, it is so hot here in the States right now while we're recording. And I don't think we're the only place feeling the heat wave. I've been hearing all across Europe that there has been just massive heat recently. I'd love if we could talk a little bit about what's some of the impact on the people there and the healthcare systems.
1: Yeah, the heat waves have been all over the news, hasn't it? And just been absolutely crazy in terms of the impact that's having on poor people that are having to live under these really difficult conditions with all the wildfires and the impact this has both on your health and the environment. And hospitals in Italy, Greece, Spain and Portugal, as well as many other European nations have seen a really sharp rise in the number of people seeking emergency care for heat related illnesses as a result of these recent heat waves. And to give an example, some hospitals in Italy are reporting a 20 to 25% increase in the number of patients arriving at emergency units, suffering from things like dehydration and other illnesses as a result of their overexposure to the harsh heat.
2: I think this is more evidence on the impact that global heating is having and how perhaps these heat waves might have happened anyway, but they are becoming more severe with the warming that's happening at the moment. And Jack, as you mentioned, the corresponding impact that's going to have on healthcare systems, this actually reminds me, unfortunately, of the 2003 European heat wave. I remember learning about this in geography at school, and I really hope that Europe is in a a better position to deal with heat waves like this after some of the lessons that, that, that were learned in that heat wave. In 2003, I don't think anyone was really prepared for the change in temperature that's happening in Europe. Unfortunately, 70,000 people died across the continent in that heat wave. Healthcare systems were overwhelmed and hospitals struggled to cope with the influx of patients that were suffering from heat stroke and dehydration. Now, the vast majority of those affected were elderly. Over half of those who, who died were over 85 years old. Is there any indication, Jack, of these specific European nations or specific cities which you're seeing that are particularly
1: vulnerable to these heat waves? First off, Ollie, I can't believe you can actually remember that 2003 heat wave, given you must have been just a very small boy at the time. But from a North European nation perspective, they're actually the most vulnerable nations in Europe when it comes to heat waves. Researchers from various countries in Europe found that Paris topped the list in heat-related risk across all age groups, with the likelihood of excess deaths rising due to temperatures 1.6 times higher than other European cities. In the UK, an estimated 90% of hospital buildings were vulnerable to overheating. Uh, Even during just warm summers, temperatures in some wards exceeded 30 degrees Celsius, even when the temperature outside was just 22 degrees Celsius. And last year's multi-record breaking hot and dry weather, which actually saw the 40 degrees Celsius record in the UK, I actually read this morning that this will become typical in under 40 years. So this will just become the norm.
2: I also saw a recent report, Jack, mirroring that trend in Paris, and they are being told to prepare for regular 50 degrees C temperatures by 2050. So even more extreme where we have those continental climates. And I know you mentioned some qualitative data points there, Jack, but is there any concrete evidence on how hot weather can directly affect delivery of care and patient safety?
1: Yeah, there was actually an eye-opening study that I read recently that was published in the British Medical Journal last year, which was carried out in NHS hospitals. And it essentially showed that hot weather can result in the failure of medication storage facilities like fridges, and it can result in overheating of equipment and critical care units, it also results in increased health service use, particularly for vulnerable adults, patients taking, for instance, beta blockers or an antidepressants, aspirin, or diuretics used for their control of blood pressure, as heat has a negative correlation on, on that, as well as patients that are just typically more exposed to heat disorders. This study also echoed the findings of a similar study carried out in hospitals in Finland within Helsinki, which found that a positive association of heat waves with hospital admissions due to respiratory diseases, including both pneumonia and COPD.
2: Clearly, the significant capital expenditure and time frame required for hospitals to overhaul these facilities is going to take a long time. It's going to be expensive. Some more pragmatic guidelines and solutions are being explored. A really interesting <laughs> one that caught my eye this week was the German health minister, Karl Lauterbach, actually suggested a siesta. Obviously, typically we we know this in Italy and Spain and Portugal to allow workers to avoid the heat of the day. So the idea that this is being considered, I think the quote from from the minister was certainly not a bad proposal in Germany, is a real shift in the culture that we expect in those countries. I'm sure Jen's seen many of these stories with the heat there's been in the States, but in Arizona, I saw that several hospitals are experiencing their highest overflows since the COVID peak, and actually some ER doctors are placing patients in bags filled with ice in extreme cases to try and cool them down. Back in Europe, in Paris, public health authorities are already identifying people at risk, so a much more proactive approach, perhaps than that we saw in 2003, so that they can be notified in advance of high temperatures and looking at ways of Proactively calling them down and giving them support. Again, I think it's worth referencing that uh, over half of the people that died in 2003 were over 85. So, how can we proactively support that patient population during this period of climate change?
1: Yeah, some interesting strategies there, Ollie. I certainly wouldn't say no to a siesta. I'd love them to adopt that in the UK as well as potentially Germany. And I think you're right in terms of it's important now more than ever in terms of this heat wave, which is really putting a spotlight on the desperate need for European action across the board to effectively tackle climate change. We know it's a huge, huge problem, but you know these heat waves are coming more and more frequent and it's really, really concerning. And these twin pressures of rising temperature, which can cause those you know, increases in patients suffering from heat related illnesses, And these terrible heat waves we're currently experiencing across Europe and across the world as a whole is really, really worrying given the the damaging nature of these in terms of from an infrastructure perspective and potentially overwhelming our health services. So I don't want to end this month's episode on, on a downer, but I do think that there is a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure that we are fit for purpose, to make sure that We can be resilient in the light of uh, these heat waves that will continue to get worse and worse.
0: To your point, Jack, I'm hopeful that this bad news when it comes to the heat waves in Europe and climate change can be an accelerant, right? Not only to make sure that the health systems are future-proofed for this type of heat that seems inevitable, but also that our nations can really take their efforts to decrease the heating of the globe more seriously as they're seeing the impacts ripple across. As always, we know the only constant in the healthcare industry is change. So I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode, where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.